Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, to celebrate or commiserate Valentine's Day, we're taking a stimulating scientific odyssey through the world of love and attraction. We'll be looking at how dating has changed through the ages, what psychology can tell us about attracting a partner, plus lessons in love from the animal kingdom. I'm Khalil Thurloway. And I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Like it or loathe it, love is apparently all around us. Just in the UK, we'll probably spend over £600 million on each other this Valentine's Day, with people sending their loved ones millions of cards, flowers, chocolates and champagne. Later on, we'll be finding out what makes you attractive to other people. I'll be keeping a pen and paper ready. Before looking at long-term relationships and what statistics can tell us about our sex lives. But not to put too fine a point on it, why are we so obsessed with the subject? The enormous amount of time and money we collectively spend on finding and keeping the one indicates that it's kind of a big deal. Well, the answer to this question lies deep in our DNA. As in every single species on Earth, there is this instinctive drive to reproduce. But why does it, as they say, take two to tango? Wouldn't it just be easier to do it ourselves? Well, this is actually something of a puzzler to biologists, as Professor of Evolutionary Genetics at the University of Bath, Lawrence Hurst, explains. If you ask the question, why should any organism have sex, many people's first response is, well, you need it to reproduce, don't you? And that is true, but when you're thinking about natural selection, you have to also think, well, what would the alternative be? And the alternative is what we call asexuality. In that, what happens is a female reproduces without the aid of a male and just makes all-female progeny. Key to Darwin's theory of natural selection is survival of the fittest. If you are slightly worse at doing something, like reproducing, you're going to get outcompeted and booted from the evolutionary gene pool. So when it comes to the two strategies for making babies, sexual and asexual, it seems a no-brainer. In asexual, you can do it on your own as a strong, independent organism, and all of your offspring will be able to too. 
For sexual reproduction, you need to actually go out and find a partner. And if you manage to, your offspring are going to be 50-50 male and female. So only half of them will be able to make their own babies. If it's a game of numbers, sooner or later, Team Asexual should win, right? This nicely captures the central dilemma of the problem of the evolution of sex, which is that actually at first sight it looks as though it's hugely disadvantageous. So this isn't a small cost that sexual females are suffering. It is a massive cost that sexual females are suffering. But in the longer term, we see there must be some massive advantage, therefore, to having sex because it must be able to overcome this immediate disadvantage that you have simply in terms of numbers of progeny. I was going to say, do we have any idea why we're wasting so much time with this? Yes, well, as you can imagine, because this is at first sight such an incredible waste of time, at least for females, and so the the ideas have largely been dominated by thoughts on two sides. One is that sex might be a very good strategy to getting rid of bad mutations, uh, and the other is that it might be a really good strategy of enabling the spread of adaptive mutations or advantageous mutations. But what both of these have in common is the idea that what is really good about sex is that it generates variety. When asexual animals make babies, they are essentially clones. So if mummy's bad at maths, all her offspring are bad at maths. When you reproduce sexually, though, you jumble up your DNA with someone else's and this creates variation. Your children are different from you and from each other. So a couple might be bad at maths, but a couple might be very good, especially if your partner was. This variation is kind of like keeping your eggs in different baskets. And this is a very good idea, especially because we are constantly at war with our parasites. Whatever sort of organism you are, you're always going to have a problem with parasites. And parasites like AIDS virus, worms, etc., etc., these parasites typically have a reproductive cycle that is faster than ours. So they can evolve to us faster than we can evolve to them. Under these sorts of contexts, then it actually pays to be sexual because you're trying to get a new set of resistant strategies. So we think that one of the great advantages of being sexual is that indeed it provides some resilience of my progeny to infection. And some recent uh, work, for example, has shown that rather nicely, some organisms actually adjust the amount of sex they have. They adjust that dependent upon their parasite status. If they're loaded with parasites, if the bug thinks it's got a parasite, it actually has more sex than if it thinks it hasn't got a parasite. That was Professor Lawrence Hurst from the University of Bath. And speaking of animals, if you look across the world at the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees, almost all of it is geared towards that golden goal, sex. And if you think human dating is complicated, look at the animal kingdom. Just as animals have evolved many ways of moving and finding food, there's also a huge amount of variation in the way animals mate. To take us on an erotic journey through the animal kingdom, we're joined by zoologist Max Gray. Hi, Max. Hello. Surely it can't be that complicated. You know, boy meets girl, girl meets boy. They make smaller versions of themselves. Well, it can and it is that complicated. Uh, and this is because mating is the single most important thing that any animal is ever going to do because it's all about passing on your genes to the next generation, making more of your species, uh, which is what life is all about. So animals need to be very good at it. And so there's a huge amount of pressure, evolutionary pressure, selection, if you will, towards how how mating systems work and there's a huge variety in any number of different species that you can think of so are there any general rules of thumb 
Uh, yeah, yeah, there are a few. The main one is that uh, the mating cost is different for males and females. And for females, it's more expensive. This ultimately comes from the fact that an egg is much bigger than a sperm. And when you get into more complicated breeding systems, you know, birds laying eggs, an egg costs physically and energetically costs more than creating sperm. And if you think about mammalian pregnancy, the whole process of pregnancy is far more uh, energetically demanding than simply creating and ejaculating some sperm. So it sounds like being female is a bit of a short straw in many ways. It can be in some in some cases, uh, but in other cases, it's definitely better to be female than it is to be male. Uh, Favourite example for Valentine's Day, since St. Valentine was the patron state of beekeeping as well as love, uh, is in honeybees. The, the queen bee goes out on her mating flight and mates with a number of males. Uh, and then once she's done, she goes back and breeds and forms a colony. But all of the males, after they breed with her, as part of the mating process, when they leave, when they disentangle themselves from the queen, their phallus is ripped from them and then they die slowly afterwards. Um, so it's definitely better to be a female bee. Ouch. Uh, another good example is the Australian redback spider, where you have, again, the male and female start mating. Everything's going all right. But then the male will do a somersault almost, will flip himself over the female into into the female's mouth. She'll, you know think this is delicious and start having a nice nice snack will eat the male's body but what's uh, left behind is that his uh, genitalia is left behind and will continue uh, doing its business on its own so to speak and by sacrificing himself in this manner the um the male is more likely to successfully father some offspring that is some serious dedication it sounds like a bit of a free-for-all uh, in, so, in some senses, it, it is. I mean, broadly speaking, there are a huge number of examples in any different number of, of cases that you can imagine. But in any any specific species or indeed in a, in a family of species, mating tends to work in roughly the same way. So you can categorize these types of mating systems. A very common one in many species is called polygyny. And so this is where where one male will have sexual interactions with many females, uh, will kind of the dominant male, who is the, the highest quality male, will attract numerous females that he kind of will monopolise in a harem. So this is what happens with a with a pride of lions, and with many other many other species as well. But even that's not that simple because there are some species where this happens, at least on the face of it. An example of this is cuttlefish. So you have one dominant male cuttlefish that monopolizes all of his lady cuttlefish, but the less dominant males, of whom there are many, will kind of think, but, you know, they still want to breed. They will still attempt to breed. And if they come in as males and they get chased off by the dominant male, and, and that doesn't work. So what some of them do is, because they're a little bit smaller and because they're cuttlefish and they can change their color, they will pretend to be female. They'll adopt the coloration of females and sneak in uh, so they get to be close to all the other females because they look like one and the, the male won't notice. Um, and then while he's looking the other way, they will sneakily mate and uh, get away with it that way. On the subject of mating systems, what about monogamy? You often hear about, for example, swans mating for life. Uh, you do, yeah. It's, it's quite commonly said that a lot of birds mate for life. Another example is penguins. Um, in penguins, it's not actually as simple as that. And what seems to be monogamous, broadly speaking, is but only for one season at a time. You get this thing called seasonal monogamy, where penguins will, will mate dedicatedly with one individual until that chick is reared and an adult in its own right. And then I think this is something like only 15% of partners then reunite the following year in that specific pair. 
Um, swans are another example, as you mentioned, that is often claimed to be monogamous. And they, they do tend to stay together for more than one year at a time, you know, so-called life mating. But even then, it's not really truly monogamous because if you do some genetic testing on all of the all of the eggs or the chicks after they hatch, you find that there's still quite a high percentage of those chicks that are fathered by males that are other than the one that their mother was paired with. And this seems to happen in almost any species that people have done the analysis of that people claim is monogamous. Thank you very much. That was zoologist Max Gray. So if you resent buying your loved one a gift for Valentine's Day, just remember, at least you're not getting eaten. What you end up with is, in effect, this sequence that you've added, precisely inserted in the targeted position in the genome. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we look at the hottest new biotechnology technique to hit the headlines since forever. CRISPR has big implications for health, plus linking genetics to lifestyle, and our gene of the month is black and white and very cute. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Khalil Thurloway. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientist, or you can find us on Facebook. Still to come, how dating's changing through the ages, what happens to your brain in love, and why kissing ain't all it's cracked up to be. But first, Max drew us very nicely into our next topic, which is us. A large proportion of people would consider themselves monogamous. Most of the time, you're not allowed more than one partner. So how do you go about finding that partner? And what do we look for? Author of the book Attraction Explained, Professor Viren Swamy is a psychologist from Anglia Ruskin University, and he's joining us today to explain some of the things we look for in lovers. And he's also going to give me some sweet dating tips. Thanks for joining us, Viren. You're welcome. Help me out here. What's a big bonus if you want people to find you attractive? Well, I suppose the first thing is that if you are physically attractive, you will... You'll receive a sort of premium um, in terms of dating. So attractive people tend to get asked out on dates more often. They also tend to have sex more often. And if you're female, you probably have more orgasms during sex. Oh, that's not fair. (laughs) Well, the idea is that if you're with someone who's physically attractive, your partner is more likely to make an effort with you in bed. Wow. Why is being good looking so important then? One idea is that seeing someone attractive is rewarding in some way. Um, It activates part of the brain that is also activated when we get any kind of reward like drugs or money. So it's possible that seeing someone attractive is rewarding. And if that's the case, then we want to see them more often. The other possibility is that most human beings have a stereotype about what attractive people are like. We tend to think that attractive people are more popular, more sociable, healthier, and we have all kinds of weird thoughts about these attractive people. So it probably makes sense that if these thoughts are at least partially based in reality, then we want to be with attractive people. Is attractiveness just a bonus in in your dating life? No, it's it's a bonus in all kinds of spheres. So in occupational settings, people who are attractive tend to get hired more often. They tend to get fired less often. Uh, they get a higher starting wage. They make more money over the course of their lifetime. In other settings, uh, university students get higher grades if they're attractive. <laughs> I could keep going. This is not cheering me up this <laughs> Valentine's Day. But I suppose it's not that surprising. So what other things have you found? What about personality? Well, lots of surveys have been conducted to where you simply ask people what they look for in a, in a potential partner. And there are three main categories. So the three categories tend to be uh, physical appearance and 
Secondly, possibly things like status and uh, reputation. But usually the most important criterion that most people are looking for are things to do with niceness. We like nice people. We like people who are loyal, who have a good sense of humour, who are faithful and so on. And this is true of both women and men. So both women and men say they would like a partner who has all these qualities. One of the things that people maybe don't think about very often is the effects of proximity. We like people who are nearby in general, and we tend not to have too many relationships with people who are further away. But when you ask people about proximity, it maybe doesn't figure so much in their thoughts about a potential partner. We don't tend to think like I'm looking for someone who's who's nearby. But that's actually what tends to happen. What about playing hard to get? Is this a good idea? I've heard that a lot of people suggest this as a sort of tip for getting a man. Well, the science suggests that it doesn't work, and it doesn't work because it contravenes the theory of reciprocity. The theory of reciprocity simply predicts that we like people who like us. Uh, So showing someone that you like them, in theory, should result in them liking you in return. Playing hard to get contravenes that. It shows that you dislike someone or you're too difficult to get. The idea from science is that actually there is a separate thing you could do, which is to play selectively hard to get. And playing selectively hard to get simply gives the impression that to every possible suitor in the world, you are difficult to get. But to that one special person that you like, you are very easy to get. (laughs) So just be mean to everyone else except the one you want. Exactly. (laughs) Now, speaking of dating tips, we spoke a little bit yesterday about some good and bad chat up lines. And you fed me some lines which science says should be good or should be bad. And... um, I went out to Cambridge Brewhouse with some help on a little social experiment to try some of these lines. Um, so the first one you gave me is um, if you could have any topping on a pizza, what would it be? So let's hear how we got on. I've, I've just got a question for you. Yeah. Uh, if you could have any topping on a pizza, right, anything you want, what would yeah. you have? Anything on a pizza. And a pizza, bacon. Yeah, would you like bacon? Bacon. Why would you have bacon? I don't know. I like bacon. For you like pizza. bacon? Yeah. I, I think like I'm a... Uh, I like mushrooms. I'm a mushroom kind of guy. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like mushrooms. <laughs> that was um, willing participant Robbie Bennett you heard there trying your line, and it did work pretty well. They ended up talking together for ages. So what actually makes this a good line? It goes back to the theory of reciprocity. Reciprocity simply predicts that when you ask an open-ended question, you're much more likely to get a, a reply from that person. But that particular question also forces the other individual into a norm of conversation. The kind of tendency is to ask the other person in return what they like, but otherwise it just gets awkward. So human politeness, if anything else, will just force you to engage. Exactly. Now, you also fed me a bad line, and the bad line you fed me was... I like reading, which um, I gave it a go. So let's hear how I got on. So um, I really like reading. Okay. So do I. Yeah? Yeah. Great. Yeah? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah, that was a bad chat. Yeah, that wouldn't have worked. No. What would you say would have been a good chat? Um, Maybe I like reading Joseph Conrad. Oh, Heart of Darkness, right? Heart of Darkness. Oh, okay. That'll work. For next time. You like Joseph Conrad? Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Obviously, that went really terribly. There was no interaction at all. And what I enjoyed is that his suggestion actually went down really badly with the girl I think he was seeing. So why? what made this a bad chat-up line? Well, it's a bad chat-up line because it's a closed question. You are essentially just stating a fact rather than trying to force reciprocity. I guess for his partner, I guess it raises questions about how similar they really are. (laughs) 
And I suppose something else to consider is if you're trying chat-up lines, don't go over to a couple. And also, I think that maybe the important point to emphasise is that these chat-up lines aren't going to work in every single situation. If you went up to someone in a library and asked them what their pizza topping or favourite pizza topping is, it just probably wouldn't work. (laughs) There's one line which you fed me, which I was actually too cowardly to try, which was... um, You're short, but that's all right because I like short people. And this is something called negging. So tell me about negging. So negging is something proposed by lots of pickup artists. And it's simply either a man, usually a man, uh, going up to a woman and using either a backhanded compliment or an offensive statement. And the idea from pickup artistry is that this is supposed to make the woman more attracted to you. Uh, The problem with negging is that I think firstly, the science doesn't support it. The science suggests that actually negging doesn't work. It's not a good way of approaching someone. I think the bigger problem with a lot of pickup artistry is that it's simply based in misogyny. It is based on this idea that you can deprogram or dehumanise women and that's a good way to get them into bed with you. Even if you did think that that was a good way of going about the world, the idea that you can lie and trick someone into having a relationship with you is not a good start for a future relationship. So no negging then. Well, do you have a top tip, a final science hack for anyone who might be looking for love? I get asked this question a lot. And I always say that dating is stressful. It is stressful for everyone because there is so much anxiety involved. In fact, there are studies suggesting that at the start of a relationship, particularly in the first few months, your levels of cortisol go start to increase, suggesting that it is stressful. And because it's stressful, we sometimes behave in silly ways. And my advice really would be just to be kind to everyone. Everyone is, everyone who's dating at least, is in the same boat and they're all being stressed and they're all finding it difficult. And if you're kind, not just to other people, but also to yourself, I find it goes much better. That's some lovely advice. Thank you very much, Viren. That was Viren Swamy from Anglia Ruskin University and the author of Attraction Explained. We've just heard how to attract people, but how do we actually go about meeting them? Chat-up lines in a bar clearly aren't a great idea. And these days, it seems people are using tech more and more. Greta Jackson has been looking into our dating pasts and presents. This might interest you. In the Isle of Man, there was a, a hotel and they had tables all around the ballroom and on every table was a telephone. And if you fancied somebody uh, of the other side of the room, you could ring her up and she would answer the phone and you'd say, would you care to have a dance with me? That's not how my grandmother met my grandfather, though. How I met... Eric, your grandfather, was um, on the tennis courts. And it just so happened that the girl I was with, she knew the two lads on the adjoining court. So she introduced us. And that's how our friendship began. Did you manage to give him a good thrashing when you played him at tennis then? (laughs) No, I didn't really. We were pretty evenly matched. My grandmother had never really dated anyone before then. Things were very different back then. Today, though, is rather different. You don't necessarily have to approach someone in a bar or at a tea dance. You can just ping them a message via one of the many dating websites or apps. Well, it strikes me that the internet's perfect in that context. Meet my dad, David. We were just saying how difficult it is to meet people when you're out and about. If you were to take the view that you have to meet, let's say, 200 people in order to meet one person that was compatible, then internet dating provide that volume that you would otherwise struggle to find if you were relying on face-to-face encounters. 
Uh, and I guess in terms of the way you might approach it, I mean, if you were thinking of it as a job interview, looking in terms of looking for a partner, you might, uh, in terms of analogy, uh, try and encourage as many candidates as possible to apply. And... <laughs> In that sense, uh, you kind of interview them, so you can uh, you can re- reduce it all to a bit of a process. I mean, clearly, it's a, a matter of the heart in the end. This is slightly weird because you're discussing it with your daughter about your your dating life. But something that strikes me about the world of of dating today is that things are much more casual. If you have to meet, say, two hundred people. <laughs> Well, at the risk of, as you say, discussing it with my daughter, in my mind, it's a mistake to commit to something which has no a sort of definable end. So a whole evening, so dinner, for example, would be a commitment a bit too far, in my view, on the first meeting, because you still haven't really established any clear rapport. So a coffee, in that casual sense, is a nice, easy thing to do. In my limited experience, I hasten to add. Dating is definitely more casual. I can vouch for that. But I think it goes further than that. But this was something I definitely did not want to probe with my dad. At least among my peers, relationships start with sleeping with someone. And then maybe it develops into something more. It's all about going with the flow and hanging out. But as a result, the definition of what the relationship is or isn't gets completely blurred. And in my experience, you have no idea what's going on. So I rang up my brother Scotty to discuss my dating woes. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few different types of relationship in my mind. So, you know, you could be seeing someone or you'd be going out with them or, well, you could be just, you know, friends with benefits, that sort of thing. This new way of dating, super casual with no clear boundaries and a choice of seemingly endless possible mates. Is it a good or a bad thing. Either way, the hapless romantic in me has always taken great comfort in what my dad told me last year. That was when we were talking about when you were saying you were comfortable being single and that you had no real plans to meet anybody. Mm. And that's when I said, you may not have any plans, but if you meet somebody, you meet somebody. No matter what you were thinking previously, love takes over. That was Greya Jackson speaking to her nanny, Pat, her father, David, and her brother, Scotty Jackson. Greer is with us now. Which dating method sounded best to you? It's really hard to tell, I think, because ultimately in the modern way of dating, how you and I might date, actually, there's a lot of confusion. Are you dating someone? Are you not? Ultimately, that could lead to someone getting hurt. But having said that, that can also work in your advantage if you're not sure where you want the relationship to go. It's less defined. It's more flexible. So I don't know, really. I think it's each to their own. You take each situation as you go. Nowadays, especially with our generation, technology seems to be playing a bigger and bigger role. It used to be online dating websites, but now it's moving more into the app arena. What kind of an impact do you think this is having on modern dating? Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because, you know, my grandmother, it was telephone across the room. and My dad uses online dating websites, whereas 
I, don't, I can't speak for Scotty. It's not something we talk about regularly. But certainly for me, it's a, much more about the apps and less about your online profiles. I think it's having a huge impact on, on how we date. As I said before, things are becoming much, much more casual. I think it's just because you have an, a limitless number of people that you can choose from. And as a result, you, you want to invest less time um, so that you can see more people. But also there's this FOMO thing, this fear of missing out. Perhaps there's someone better just around the corner. Viren, I'm, I'm going to bring you back in here. Is this something you've looked at? Would you say apps and technology are changing how we find love? They're changing two things. They're changing where we meet our potential partners. So about 30 years ago, very few people would have met online and the majority of people would have met in what we call closed spaces. So closed spaces, any place where you have to have an affiliation to join, like university or workplaces. And by far, the majority of people would have met in these closed spaces. The latest data suggests that increasingly people are meeting online or through dating apps. The other thing that's changing is the nature of relationships. It's changing the nature of relationships in the sense that people are self-presenting in a way that they haven't been able to before. If you're meeting someone offline, you have to kind of have a negotiation of that relationship very quickly and trying to work out what the other person is like and trying to find out what their personalities are like, what their hobbies, etc. and so on are like. Online, you get a lot of that information very quickly, even before you've met that person. And that short circuits the relationship process because you get that information. The thing you need to do to work out once you meet that person is whether that information actually matches what they said online. The curious thing, though, is that most people apparently don't seem to lie very much on their online profiles. They may lie, add a centimetre here or take a few pounds off there, but people don't tend to lie very much because... Obviously, the point of online dating is to eventually meet someone. And if you add six inches, you are going to get found out. I guess Um, no one wants to get caught out. I find that very hard to believe. I'm I'm sure people have lied about their height. I'm I'm just telling you what the science says. The science says. I I think there is a certain type of person who does lie on online dates all the time. Mind you, I've had some horror story dates. Maybe I'm just tarnished forevermore. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Khalil Thurloway and Georgia Mills. So far, we've looked at the evolution of sex, animal attraction, and how us humans go about looking for the one. But that's not the end of the story, as for many of us, once we've found a partner, we want to stick with them. What's often referred to as falling in love. Poets, artists, singers, they've all got quite a lot to say about the subject, to put it lightly. But what can science tell us about the force that glues couples together? Naked Scientist Connie Orbach has been investigating and is here in the studio. Hi, Connie. Hi, Khalil. What can science tell us about love? It can tell us an awful lot and not much at all, all at the same time, it would seem. There seems to be three stages. So we've got the lust stage, which I think you've already been talking about on the show. It's the stage of attraction where you're maybe quite promiscuous. There's really high testosterone levels in uh, males as well as females. So after that, we have the attraction stage. And that's when the kind of real high kicks in. And it's kind of the honeymoon period. And you see really high levels of uh, what's called monoamines at that point, which are chemicals in the brain. Uh, You've got serotonin, dopamine, also noradrenaline. These are all the kind of things which give you a massive high and just make that period just absolutely amazing. And finally, we have the attachment stage, which is the bit which makes you want to stay together. So at this point in the relationship, what's going on in the brain and body chemistry? Okay, so 
There's a few different things going on. And it's interesting that we say love is, it's all about chemistry, because actually a lot of the time it is. We've got huge changes in the chemical balances in our brain that happen around this time. Um, There's a few different really important hormones involved. We've got oxytocin, which you may have heard of before. It's often called the cuddling chemical. It's the kind of thing that makes social bonding and social cohesion work without it we're not very good in social situations. We've also got uh, vasopressin, which is actually controlling heart rate and things like that. But we've seen it's really important in monogamous animals. And when we've studied this, we've actually used an animal to study it, the prairie vole. And they're really cute little voles. And what we find is that they actually nest together. They stay together for life once they've got a partner and they bring up their children together. So they're kind of one of the best analogies that we have for humans. Uh, What's also really useful with them is that there's a different type of vole, the montane vole, which is really closely related, but not monogamous. So when we're looking at differences in the brains, we can compare the two to get a better idea of what's going on. Now, with these voles, if we knock out their ability to respond to the hormone I just mentioned, vasopressin, they actually can't form a monogamous bond. They don't stay together. But there's also something else which I find really interesting, which is that dopamine gets involved here. Now, dopamine you might have heard of specifically with drug addiction, and there's a reward pathway in the brain which is activated with dopamine. Now, what we found in the prairie voles is that before sex and after sex, dopamine can have a really different action. Before sex, it's causing these prairie voles to go out and be really promiscuous and find mates and, and, you know, get out and meet people like we're always needing to do or meet tiny little voles, I guess. Um, And after sex, it's actually causing them to be aggressive to other animals of the same sex as them. They essentially become kind of jealous possessive prairie voles the kind of thing that is like the epitome of like horrible thing that happens in a relationship to to your other half so i guess this is one bit of the animal kingdom we don't quite want to emulate yes definitely (laughs) this idea of mating affecting your dopamine levels and almost making these these voles addicted to their mate kind of sounds like a drug Yeah, it does. And I mean, I'm sure there's loads of songs talking about love as a drug. Uh, It's hard to say that it's addictive because there's lots and lots of different things that set off the dopamine reward system and not all of them are addictive. We have so many different myths thrown around, like chocolate's addictive. And they may activate that pathway, but there's a few other things that need to happen for something to be addictive. But it definitely gives you that high that addictive substances give you. Thank you very much, Naked Scientist Connie Orbach. Well, if you or any prairie voles you know have already found your one and only, I would get your kisses in now as Katani might be about to put you off in her Valentine's-based myth conception. Love is in the air. And what better way to pass the time than with a bit of kissing and canoodling with an attractive human of your choice? From pecking on the lips to a full-on snogging session, kissing is associated with romantic desire in popular culture the world over. In art, films, books, music videos and everything else, it's something done by lovers with intimate designs on each other. Or is it? In fact, a study published in 2015 by American anthropologists showed that around the world, just under half of the 168 cultures they investigated liked to lock lips in a romantic setting. And many of those who didn't thought that the behaviour was actually pretty gross. In the paper, sexily titled, Is the Romantic Sexual Kiss a Near Human Universal? The researchers showed that only 46% of cultures fancied a snog. For example, out of 10 cultures studied in Europe, only seven kissed in a romantic way on the lips. 
The research poured cold water on previous work suggesting that kissing was a near-universal display of love. This idea was supported by observations from scientists who had spotted chimps and bonobos having a cheeky snog, suggesting it might be something that goes way back in our evolutionary history. But the discovery that half of all cultures don't kiss shows that the belief that snogging is universal to humans is probably the result of an excessive focus on a small range of Western cultures as being representative of the entire world. The joy of ethnocentrism... So, given that kissing must be a cultural phenomenon rather than an innate behaviour, why do any of us kiss at all? For a start, the cultures that do kiss believe that it's a good way to judge whether a potential partner is uh, up for taking things further and if they're likely to be sexually compatible, and perhaps to test more subtle cues about their health and halitosis. A questionnaire-based study found that kissing seems to be more important for bonding in long-term relationships than as a turn-on in the heat of passion, although many respondents said that a first kiss was a good way of checking out a potential partner's, um, potential. Building on this, a 2014 study showed that test participants, particularly women, judged descriptions of people to be more attractive if they were told they were good kissers. And on a more basic biological level, a 2014 study revealed that a 10-second kiss results in around 80 million bacteria being swapped between snoggers, which might potentially help to boost immunity between partners. Something to think about if you're lucky enough to have a willing partner to give you a big snog on Valentine's Day. Although, don't think too hard about all those bacteria. I wouldn't want to be responsible for putting you off. Thank you for that immaculate myth conception, Kat. And Kat will be along next week to thwart another fallacy. If you have anything you'd like her to tackle, drop us a line at chris at thenakedscientist.com. We heard earlier that love is like a drug in many ways, addling us into adoration. But can other drugs impact how you feel about someone? Well, maybe. There's been some recent research showing a surprising association. When women come off the contraceptive pill, there's actually a drop in marital satisfaction in many cases. Georgia spoke to researcher Michelle Russell from North Carolina State University to find out what might be causing this. We know from previous research that women experience shifts in uh, the kind of traits and characteristics that they tend to prefer in uh, their partners and that these shifts are associated with the shifts in uh, the hormones that occur across their ovulatory cycle. Uh, So, for example, women who are normally ovulating during their fertile period show uh, stronger preferences for men who uh, have symmetrical faces, who are more masculine. Uh, The thing is, though, is that hormonal contraceptives can disrupt these hormonal shifts. And I was really interested in what the implications were for the use of hormonal contraceptives for women um, who are in established relationships. So we know that the majority of women in industrialized nations do use hormonal contraceptives at some point during their lives. So a lot of women are starting relationships while they're using contraceptives. uh, So then they're not experiencing these natural shifts in preference that we would see with women who aren't using them. And then when they're in their relationships, many of them eventually stop using them. So basically, what does it mean for these women to begin these relationships not experiencing these normal shifts and then to, during the relationship, start experiencing these shifts again? How did you go about uh, looking into this relationship? We had two longitudinal studies of uh, newlywed couples 
we had them go back and just give us their history of their contraceptive use from the time they started their relationship with their partner all the way up until like the current point in that study. We get reports of their marital satisfaction um, every few months. And then we also uh, rated each of their partners. We rated their attractiveness. So we actually trained uh, a team of coders to uh, go through and rate the attractiveness for all of the husbands and the wives as well in this sample. So you trained people to rate how attractive they <laughs> I know. It's, it sounds really funny. Um, and, you know, people tend to think, oh, how, how objective can you be when it comes to rating uh, attractiveness? But in general, we see, and this is across cultures, that people are remarkably consistent when it comes to deciding what's attractive and what's not, like bone structure, uh, facial symmetry, skin clarity. So we had them looking for, uh, you know, specific characteristics. But I will say it doesn't take very long to get people, you know, uh, reliable when it comes to rating attractiveness. We were all had making pretty consistent ratings pretty quickly. Taking this data of the women on and off contraceptive pills mm-hmm. alongside the husband attractiveness, what did you mm-hmm. actually find out? So what we found was that um, among women who began their relationships while they were using hormonal contraceptives, they get into this relationship, and once they stop using hormonal contraceptives, women who were married to men who were relatively more attractive uh, actually had higher relationship satisfaction. So they were happier with their relationship once they stopped using hormonal contraceptives if their husband was also uh, relatively more attractive. Uh, For the wives who, unfortunately, were married to the uh, relatively less attractive husbands, we saw um, a decrease in their relationship satisfaction. So they were actually less happy with their relationships once they stopped using hormonal contraceptives. Why should there be this difference? Uh, Well, what we think is going on is that, again, um, like I said, so women are uh, experiencing natural shifts in preferences across their ovulatory cycle. And what we think might be going on is that when women are using hormonal contraceptives, so we've already seen um, from previous research that women actually choose different partners uh, when they're using hormonal contraceptives than do women who aren't using them. So they tend to choose partners who are uh, slightly less uh, masculine, slightly less attractive. And we think what might be going on is that while they're using hormonal contraceptives, they might prioritize attractiveness a little bit less than would women who aren't using them. And then what happens is that when they stop taking hormonal contraceptives, they start experiencing these shifts again. So this might become something that, you know, becomes a little bit more important to them at this point. So for those women who are married to a man who is relatively more attractive, well, you know, that it works out then that, you know, they're prioritizing this a little bit more because their partner has that characteristic. Whereas for those women who have the relatively less attractive partners, suddenly, you know, this partner's not necessarily meeting um, all those priorities that they might be experiencing now. And what you've discovered is a relationship. So we haven't been able to set aside these things and say this is causing that. But the relationship is very interesting. And I'm surprised to think that something as small as a little pill can actually <laughs> change how happy you are with your marriage. It, it is. And so, yeah, as you said, it's not experimental. So we absolutely have to be careful when we make any sort of causal um, explanations for this. And it is something... It's important, I think, to point out, too, that, you know, I've been studying relationships for many, many years now. And the thing that you learn when you're studying relationships and what influences relationship satisfaction is that there are so many different factors. 
and that, you know, yes, this does have an effect on relationship satisfaction, but it's it's not a huge effect. And it's about the same effect size as we would see um, for other factors that predict relationship satisfaction. So it's it's a small part of the puzzle. But it's interesting because, again, the prevalence of hormonal contraceptives, for them to for women to use them as much as they do, we really don't know. You know, we know more about physiologically what they do to women, but not necessarily what it means for their relationships. And it's, you know, as a woman, it's I would want to know, you know, I want to make sure that I'm informed when I'm taking medication and everything. So I think this is just one small piece of information that women might want to have to consider. Again, I don't think it's nearly enough to, you know, tell women to you know, stop taking them or anything. It's absolutely not something we would ever, ever recommend. But again, small piece of the puzzle that women might want to consider. You heard there Dr. Michelle Russell from the North Carolina State University speaking about why contraceptive pills might be having an impact on our marriages. Sex and statistics might sound like unlikely bedfellows, but stats are one of the only ways that we can actually get an idea of what's going on behind closed doors and under the covers, and we can peek at how human behaviour is changing over time. So what do the numbers say? And can we really trust them? We're joined down the line by Professor David Spiegelhalter, a statistician at Cambridge University and author of Sex by Numbers. Hi, David. Hello. Why do stats make such a valuable tool for looking at our habits? Well, they're the way we can actually find out what really is going on, or at least as best we can. So we don't just have to listen to people's stories, their anecdotes, their boasts, maybe. Uh, We can actually try to do the numbers. Now, sometimes we can work out the numbers from official statistics, really good statistics. You know, we know how many babies are born. It used to be an interesting statistic to correlate uh, birth records with marriage records and find out, for example, what proportion of women were pregnant when they got married, which is usually about 30%. So, uh, you know, sometimes we can get some very good numbers like that. Um, Other times we really just have to ask people about their behavior, what they get up to. But then there are good and bad ways of doing that. How reliable are these various methods of of asking people about their experiences? Well, there are some terrible methods. Uh, If you just put up a a survey, an online survey or a little insert in a magazine as they used to be and ask people to fill this in and send it in if they felt like it, you're you're going to learn nothing. Even if you get a big response rate, you know, thousands, 10,000 people might respond. It still only says something about those 10,000 people, which is okay, but you don't really learn anything about what's going on in the general population. If you really want to have an idea of what's you know, going on in the whole country, you have to try to get a representative sample to respond. You can do random sampling techniques in, you know, using standard survey methods. The problem then, of course, is getting people to re- actually answer the questions and getting them to give reliable answers. And there's all sorts of methods that people have gone about to try to do that. The big UK survey is known as NatSal. It costs, a four, it costs about £7 million each time. They do it every 10 years. And that relies on face-to-face interviewers going into people's houses, gaining their trust. They get about £30, so a moderate fee for taking part. But they build a a little relationship, not a very personal relationship, but by assuring the person that this information is valuable, it's good for planning health services, it's a contribution to society. They get around about a 66% response rate, which doesn't sound great, but it's much better than most surveys. 
And the, and the other crucial thing is that when the questions are asked now, the interviewer doesn't hear the responses. It's all done on a computer. So the person being interviewed enters their answers to the questions in and then the computer's locked down and the interviewer never knows what was actually said. So when you're asking, you know, what could be slightly embarrassing questions or difficult questions about age at first sex, how many partners you've had, you know, have you had concurrent relationships as it's known when you've got two or more sexual partners going on at the same time, people will answer those sorts of questions. Surely the responses to these surveys do depend on honesty on the parts of the participants. Yes, and there's various checks built in um, within the interview to check that the person isn't contradicting themselves from previous answers. There's also checks among the whole survey about um, to, to correlate with previous surveys. Interesting, if you ask 30-year-olds in the year 2000 when they first had sex, and you ask a random group of 40-year-olds in the year 2010 when they first had sex, you should get roughly the same answer. But there's one check, the data essentially always fail. Um, it's a mathematical fact that if you've got an equal number of men and women of the same age distribution and you ask them how many sexual partners have, have you had in your lifetime, then the average, that's the mean average, the total number of partners uh, divided by the number of people, should be the same both for men and women because each partnership requires a man and a woman. We're talking about opposite sex partnerships here. But... It always, in surveys, men claim to have had a larger number of sexual partners on average than women do. Now, as we said, this is a mathematical impossibility. The, the gap is, is lower than it used to be. It always used to be that men said they're twice as many as women did, which is so wonderfully impossible. And the gap's got down, but it's still there over the whole lifetime. And uh, this is a bit of a problem, of course, for sex researchers. And a lot of effort has gone into trying to identify why this might be the case. Um, it could be just because men boast and women are very reticent. And uh, there's a suggestion that men <laughs> tend to round up and women tend to round down. Now, there is some evidence that psychologists have got of what's called social desirability bias, just the fact that women might be slightly less willing to acknowledge multiple sexual partners. And there's this wonderful experiment that some American psychologists did where they randomly allocated students to three different ways of responding to a sex survey. And one of them was, was very confidential. One of them had uh, the threat of exposure in that they knew that one of their, their friends, one of their other students, would pick up the form and take it away. And the, in the third arm, uh, they were actually wired up to a lie detector. Actually, it wasn't a lie. It was a fake lie detector. All, all them, you know, with the little pen going wiggly, wiggly and all this stuff. But they thought they were. And uh, and they showed that uh, for women, uh, but not so much for men, that, that if the people wired up to the uh, lie detector acknowledged having a greater number of sexual partners and actually then matching the number that the men had said. So not a big effect, but enough to suggest that that also is part of the reason. What do these data tell us about how our sex lives have changed over the years? Yeah, I think this is one of the most interesting things. Now, now for example, the Big British Survey has been done for um, three times, so 1990, roughly 2000, 2010. You can start looking at the trends. And even if you know there's some uncertainty about the numbers, the trends, you think, are fairly reliable. And there are some... You know, I suppose slightly surprising trends in that, for example, the frequency of sex has gone down over the last 20 years. This is the one people often pick on as being interesting. And that's even among couples who are together, um, you know, 
couples, 16 to 44 year old, opposite sex couples, on average in 1990 had sex five times every four weeks. Then it went down to four and now it's three. And uh, so all sorts of reasons, because I'm a statistician, it's not my job to say why this happens. But the people, the actual researchers who did the survey um, have, under, <laughs> under considerable media pressure, come up with their sort of uh, ideas, this theory of why this might happen, in that they, um, you know, they think that... Uh, Quite a lot of responsibility is just, you know, people's lives have changed so much. Our interconnectivity, our smartphones, our iPads, whatever, are there all through all the time, right through the evening, even into bed maybe. And so uh, this this constant connection with the outside world, you know, you think might have reduced that time of, of just personal intimacy. Not now, darling. I'm playing Angry Birds. I'm playing Angry Birds, yeah. Or I'm watching the latest box set or something rather. Thank you very much. That was David Spiegelhalter from the University of Cambridge. So far, we've taken a journey through the world of sex, love and romance, looking at how our drive to reproduce has caused some very interesting effects in our love lives. But if we take a step back and we look at our modern world, it's full of art, music and technology. Could it be that this instinct to mate is the cause of everything that makes us human? Well, in his book, The Mating Mind, Professor Geoffrey Miller argues that something called sexual selection could be at the heart of all that we are, as he explained to me earlier. Bear in mind, every single one of your ancestors, all the way back millions of years, succeeded not just in surviving and making a living, but also attracting a mate, keeping them around long enough to raise kids together, and basically being sexually and romantically successful. All of our would-be ancestors who failed to attract a mate, no matter how good they were at surviving, did not pass on their genes and did not become our ancestors. This drive to reproduce means we have traits that make us sexy, but that don't necessarily help us to survive. Think about the peacock's tail. It's probably not going to help them avoid being eaten. Probably the opposite. But the big feathers and bright colours show off the male's genetic quality. So females rather like them. And us humans have our own versions of the peacock's tail. I think in humans we have physical equivalents, things like male beards, male upper body muscles, female breasts and buttocks, any traits that are elaborated beyond the requirements of surviving and parenting. But beyond that, we also have mentally attractive traits that are also romantically compelling, things like intelligence, creativity, sense of humor, artistic and musical abilities, and even moral virtues. You kind of just listed almost everything about people there in one go. Why would someone find these traits attractive? I think these traits are all attractive because they testify that your brain works pretty well. It's hard to produce these if you've got brain damage or if you're the result of siblings or cousins getting married and having genetic inbreeding problems. So it's a pretty good testament to your brain quality and in turn your genetic quality. So I think that's why we pay a lot of attention to these. We're sort of doing an unconscious quality assessment. It's something Freud kind of talked about a century ago, and I'm by no means a fan of Freud, but I think he was onto something that if we were only motivated to survive, to take care of our kids, an awful lot of human civilizational achievements would not have happened. An awful lot of art and music and intellectual progress would not have happened if we hadn't had this drive to attract mates. Now, no doubt, intelligence itself is, is useful in every possible domain of life. But things like sense of humor are so 
bizarre because it's you can't scare away a saber-toothed cat by making a joke at it, <laughs> right? It doesn't really help you find nuts and berries in the wild, but it's very useful socially, and it's particularly useful in sexual and romantic contexts. You mentioned uh, music, and I know when I think about guitar playing, people in bands, they're, they're quite attractive. And you argue that this is a sort of sign that your brain works well, there's positive things are going on behind the scenes. But then if you think about someone who's maybe a chess player doing really well, I can't see the same kind of fandom breaking out about it. What, what, what's the difference there? Yeah, there's a crucial difference between music and chess in that our ancestors were making music to attract each other. For at least 30,000 years, we have good evidence from bone flutes from Germany. So we know music is ancient, and that means we could evolve, mate preferences to be attracted to music. Chess, on the other hand, is only about 1,000 years old. So we haven't really had the instincts to find grandmasters romantically compelling. But if we wait another 10,000 years, it might be that chess becomes as romantically compelling as music is now. <laughs> It's hard, it's hard to predict those things, but it's, it's quite possible. You mentioned also, you mentioned kindness, morality. And I know that's something that has sort of natural selection a bit stumped because the whole idea is you go after something that improves your own survival. So how would sexual selection explain morality? If you're choosing somebody particularly as a, as a potential long-term partner, you really want to be able to trust them, communicate effectively with them, be confident that they have your best interests at heart. So our ancestors would have favored mates who have the moral virtues that predict being a good partner and a good parent. And that, I think, is important in Valentine's Day when you're basically doing signs of romantic commitment to say, look, here are my moral virtues as they relate to my love for you. Here's how I express them. And then if that succeeds, somebody goes, ah, they're a good person, good boy, good girl, I want them, I can trust them. I mean, the message there is kind of half sweet and half a bit depressing, like they're being kind to you, but it's just to keep you on side, it's, it's all part of the long game. Yeah, it, I mean, that's the funny thing about virtue signaling is that you're kind of showing off your innermost qualities in a somewhat ostentatious way. And when it comes to people giving lots of money to ineffective charities, that's a bad form of virtue signaling because they're basically just burning money and saying, look at me, I'm so generous. But when it comes to romantic things like writing you know, erotic poetry or Skyping with your beloved when they're away at a conference, that's good stuff. That actually does deliver real value to the other person and it testifies to your moral virtues. So I think that stuff is great. Thank you very much. That was Jeffrey Miller from the University of New Mexico. That brings us to the end of our show. A huge thank you to all of our other guests. You heard earlier in the show Lawrence Hurst, Max Gray, Connie Orbach, Greer Jackson, Viren Swamy, Michelle Russell, Kat Arney and David Spiegelhalter. This programme was produced by me, Georgia Mills from The Naked Scientists, and I was joined today by University of Nottingham's Khalil Thurloway. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Do join us next week for a Q&A special. If you want to get your questions answered, send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.